Well, brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we made it. For the last three weeks, we have heard nothing but parables from Jesus, and now we're capping it all off with a good old miracle story. And not just any miracle story, but the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people and more with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. In fact, I really can't think of any miracle story better suited to follow up three weeks of eight parables than the feeding of the multitude. I love this story because it's almost a parable in uh, itself. It gives us a clear picture of the difference between the kingdom of the world on the one hand and the kingdom of heaven on the other hand. It shows us clearly that the arithmetic of the kingdom of heaven is nothing like the arithmetic of the kingdom of the world. We know the arithmetic of the kingdom of the world. It's really very simple. It says things like two plus two equals four, and five loaves plus two fish equals thousands of hungry people. But the arithmetic of the kingdom of heaven is different. The arithmetic of the gospel is much freer in its results. Here, two plus two might equal four or five or six, depending on God's purpose for it. And at least for one evening, some two millennia ago, five loaves plus two fish in the face of thousands of people meant all ate and were filled. Now, obviously, I'm not the only one who loves this story. Clearly, the writers of our gospel accounts loved it, too. Did you know that aside from uh, the events of Jesus's death and resurrection, this is the only miracle of Jesus that shows up in all four Gospels? Clearly, something is important here. Now, in my view, you can't really gain a full appreciation for what's happening in this story unless you know what comes immediately beforehand. In fact, you run into it right at the beginning of our reading. Now, when Jesus heard this, well, what did he hear? He heard of the death of his cousin, John the Baptist. You're probably familiar with that story. It starts out with Herod Antipas, who is the son of Herod the Great, which was the one who had murdered all those infant boys in Bethlehem in an attempt to eliminate Jesus. Well, after his father's death, Herod Antipas was appointed a ruler of a region that included Galilee, where Jesus grew up. Now, Herod Antipas had arrested John the Baptist because John was criticizing him for marrying his brother's wife, Herodias. And when Herod's birthday came, there was a great feast. And as part of that feast, Herodias' daughter danced for them, and this pleased Herod greatly. And in front of everyone, he promised to give her anything she wanted. It was probably the wine talking. The girl on the advice of her mother, asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so, to avoid being embarrassed in front of his guests, he had John beheaded and fulfilled his promise. It's a grisly story. Now keep that story in mind as we enter our reading today. John's disciples bury his body and they come and they tell Jesus what has happened. 
And Jesus, when he hears this news, leaves. He gets into a boat and he goes to a deserted place in order to be by himself. Matthew doesn't fill us in on what Jesus is feeling at this time, but maybe we can make some guesses. Perhaps it is grief that motivates Jesus to try and take some time away, to focus and to pray, to rest from the hard and constant work of tending to the needs of the crowds. Or perhaps it is an awareness of the danger that he himself might be in. After all, it wouldn't be the first time a Herod tried to have him killed. Whatever the reason, Jesus travels by boat to what is supposed to be a deserted place. But when he arrives, he finds that the crowds of people have followed by foot, tracking him from the shore, coming close so that he might heal their sick. Now, if I were Jesus, I'm not sure how I would have reacted. I'm not... Uh, I've not yet had the experience of thousands of people demanding my time on my supposedly day off. And I'm not looking for that experience either, by the way. Don't get any ideas. Anyway, Jesus responds not with annoyance or anger or frustration, but with compassion. Rather than telling the crowds to leave him alone, to give him some space, he spends the day curing the sick. And finally, as evening approaches, his disciples remind Jesus of the logistics of the situation. Jesus, this is a deserted place, and it's getting late. Shouldn't we be letting these people go so they can uh, get to a, a nearby village and find something to eat? And you can see the logic of their suggestion. After all, this is the sort of thinking that makes the world go round. It's this sort of careful planning and forethought that leads to success at least in this kingdom. But Jesus has something else in mind, and it simply won't do to send all these people away hungry. Sure, they have already received far more than they deserve, just in the healing of their sick, but Jesus wants to provide more. So he replies to the disciples and their logical planning, you give them something to eat. I imagine that after Jesus said this, there was a pause as the disciples studied his face to see if he was joking. Certainly he couldn't be serious. Certainly he must realize what a remote and deserted place they are in. Even if they had time to run to a village and back, how could they afford to buy so much food, enough food to feed such a multitude. And even if they could have afforded it, there's no way a small village would have enough spare food on hand to feed a crowd of 5,000 men, not counting women and children. And even if it did, how would they carry it all back? You can understand the disciples then, when faced with the magnitude of the task Jesus is giving them, they respond, we have nothing except five loaves and two fish. I mean, talk about scarcity. Jesus had lost a cousin and an ally in John the Baptist. And then he has traveled to a deserted place for restoration, but now he's lost that too. This deserted place is not only devoid of settlements and food, 
but also of solitude. And now Jesus is suggesting to his disciples that they give up their dinner to this crowd as though they have enough to even give each person a mouthful. Now, of course, we know how the story ends. We know that Jesus blesses the food and breaks the bread and the disciples distribute it to the crowd and that everyone eats and is filled and that they end up with more food left over than they started with. We know that at least on this one occasion, the arithmetic of the kingdom of the world proved inadequate to accommodate God's compassion for these people and that the arithmetic of the kingdom of heaven came into play, providing abundance in the midst of scarcity, as the kingdom of heaven always does. What a contrast between these two stories. What a contrast between these two feasts. On the one hand, a royal birthday party in the halls of a palace, the very center of extravagant abundance with food and drink to spare. And on the other hand, a deserted place lacking even solitude, the very picture of scarcity. And yet, that which was abundant, according to the reckoning of the world, revealed itself to be a place of death. And that which was lacking, according to the reckoning of the world, was revealed to abound in compassion, in healing, and even food life abundantly. So I ask, what kind of reckoning are we living by? What sort of arithmetic are we using to order our life? Because our Lord is the same Lord who overflowed with hospitality for a thoughtless crowd. And our God is the same God who multiplied the disciples' dinner into food enough for thousands. So what do we see when we look at our life together as a congregation? What is it that we have for the sake of this commission that Jesus has given us? Do we answer with the disciples, we have nothing? Do we notice simply our lack? Our lack of young people, our lack of energy, our lack of money, our lack of size? Or do we trust in the God who promises to provide? The God who says, I am with you always. The God who says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old shall dream dreams, your young shall see visions. By what logic do we evaluate our ability to do the work to which God is calling us? The reckoning of the world or the courage of faith? Because like the crowds, we too are fed with the living bread from heaven, the supply of which will not run out. And like the disciples, we too are entrusted with the gifts to satisfy the hunger of the world. Gifts of wealth, of time, of energy, of music, of beauty, of welcome, of faith, of hope, of love. 
We are given, each one of us, enough to satisfy the hungry heart. We are given, each one of us, gifts to be used for the good of the world. And though we only see scarcity when using the eyes of the world, through the eyes of faith, trusting in the in God's ever-flowing word to us, we see that God's abundance is found even in our deserted places. That God's providence shows up precisely when we feel the lack. Jesus says now, as he did then, that there is no need for anyone to go away empty, for he has given and is still giving the true and abundant food which does not run out. In the gifts of baptism in the Lord's Supper, of God's word both spoken and sung, of the communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins, we already have everything necessary for the fulfillment of God's purpose among us and for the carrying out of Jesus' mission to the world. So go. Give them something to eat. Fill the world with the news of what God has done in Christ. For God's providence is found in your desert places, and God's abundance overcomes your lack. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.